Dr. Dennis Johnson pastored uh, churches in New Jersey and California, uh, coast to coast. Then he served as a professor of practical theology at Westminster Seminary in California from 82 to 2018. In his retirement, he serves as an assistant pastor up at Westminster Pres, just north of us here in Dayton. He's written books on Acts and Philippians, Hebrews, Revelation, preaching, counseling, and contributed to three study Bibles. He's taught the Word of God in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. He's on the board of Rafiki Foundation, a ministry to children, widows, and churches in Africa. He and his wife, Jane, have been married for 52 years. They have four married children and 16 grandchildren. Welcome, my friend, and thank you for being here with us this morning. It's a joy for Jane and me to be back with you. We were here about a year and a half for a global missions conference, I think delayed because of COVID, but we were able to be here. And At that moment, uh, Greg Bainey was reporting on the launch of Woodlands Gathering, very exciting outreach, not far away, but to a different people group than we often reach, and we're just excited to be watching the, the progress of that. The Lord's provided their building, and they're moving uh, into ministry to uh, native uh, peoples, uh, our neighbors in this area. So we're, we're just pleased to be here. Our text today comes from a letter by a missionary to a supporting church. Seemed like a good choice, don't you think? Paul's letter to the Philippians, the first chapter, as you would expect in a letter from missionaries to supporting churches, he talks about money and prayer and he gives a report on how things are going on the field. So uh, we're going to focus on particularly his report on how things are going uh, on a particular field for the Apostle Paul in Philippians 1, verses 12 through 26. So let's hear the word of God uh, through uh, his apostle. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me really has served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some, indeed, preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But 
to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your, on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Let's ask the Holy Spirit who breathed out these words through the Apostle to write them into our hearts. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have sent the great missionary from heaven, your beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to accomplish the mission that only he could, to lay down his life as a ransom for his people, to take it up again, to impart to his people by the power of the Holy Spirit faith, and so give us the credit for his obedient life and his sacrificial death on our behalf. And thank you, Father, that you have brought that word to us through others whom you sent, the Apostle Paul to the Philippians and then through the Philippians on to Rome and other places, those in our lives who have brought the good news to us. And Father, thank you that this congregation has had a role in sending so many over 40-some years to various parts of the world and locally to bring the good news of Christ. Encourage us all for the role that you call each of us to in the advance of the gospel as we hear your word now. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, Paul's letter is really a missionary letter, and it does talk about money. I skipped that part. Actually, he starts to talk about money in verse 5 of this first chapter, where he talks about their partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. That word partnership is rich, but it does have financial overturns. And in chapter 4, he begins to explain that the Philippians had been uh, supporting Paul's ministry almost as a brand new church plant. He says... As soon as I left Philippi, I went to Thessalonica, which is the next town west in Macedonia, northern Greece, uh, and you sent gifts even then. And when I got down to Corinth, you sent more gifts. And now you've sent me another gift, which is really handy, uh, because the Romans had this very clever idea that they wouldn't pay for long-term prisons. They would make prisoners pay for their own room and board. So as we know from the end of Acts, the Apostle Paul had his own rented quarters in which he was chained to a succession of soldiers. Each one had about a six-hour stint of duty changed, changed to Paul. Uh, so that was 24-7, four, four soldiers every 24 hours. So Paul's thankful for their gift, and he's writing, writing in thanks for their gift. Uh, but he's doing more than that. He's thankful for their prayers, and we'll come to that actually toward the end of this text. Um, and he's even doing more than that. He's more than just saying, I really appreciate that you've helped me get the gospel different places. He is shepherding them because he was not first a missionary from them, but a missionary to them. He is their father in the faith. We read about that in Acts chapter 16, how he and Silas and their team arrived in Philippi Philippi at that point didn't have a big enough Jewish community to even be able to support a synagogue. So there was no synagogue there. Their standard operating procedure was to go to the synagogue first and open the scriptures and 
for those who knew the Bible, God would call, some at least, to faith. But no synagogue in Philippi, so they went outside the city gate, found a place of prayer, and there were a bunch of women who were worshiping the true and living God of Israel. So they preached the gospel. And a businesswoman named Lydia came to faith. And her home became the base of their ministry. Later on, as we read in Acts 16, uh, Paul set free. No, let me say that again. Jesus set free through Paul. Get that right. The apostles want that always to be clear. Jesus set free through Paul a slave girl who had been demon-possessed and was used as a fortune teller by her owners, and she was set free from demonic enslavement. Uh, well, that got Paul and Silas into trouble, you know that. They got beaten, and, and uh, because the business interests of Philippi didn't like the gospel, uh, put into prison, put into jail, short-term jail, and uh, of course, there was a certain earthquake Paul and Silas singing songs of praise in the middle of the night. Suddenly the earthquake come, the jail doors pop open. The jailer's about to commit suicide, figuring he's lost all of his prisoners. And Paul says, stop. And the jailer and his family come to faith. And the whole family's baptized. A lot of infants in that, baby, in that family, I'm sure. A lot of infant baptism. We don't know. It was, the point was household, right? Household. So they've seen the cost of advancing the gospel in Paul and Silas's suffering. And now they hear about it because they have been told something about the scenery or the, or the scenario since Paul left them last, that Paul has been accused in Jerusalem, part of a, really a mob violence activity, and uh, he's ended up in Roman custody because he has appealed as his, claimed his rights as a Roman citizen and has appealed to Caesar. Now he's waiting for Caesar, Nero Caesar. We think Nero, we think horrible. Well, in his early reign over the empire, he wasn't quite as bad as he would become. And it's a little touch and go where he is at this point. But Paul is waiting for this hearing and uh, not in the most pleasant of circumstances. Our ESV here translates this, a particular word imprisonment, and that's a fine word, but it's really literally chains, because he's in chains, and it gives you that very visual picture. And the Philippians are alarmed. Their father in the faith is in chains. In fact, more than that, they had sent their gift to help with his living expenses with one of their own, Epaphroditus, and Epaphroditus had fallen deathly ill on the trip, or at least when he was with Saul, so they'd heard that he was at death's door. And so Paul is writing to say to them, don't worry about us, everything's great here in Rome. Everything's just great here in Rome. We got an email from some of our friends who were serving in Burkina Faso just in the last week, saying, I know you've heard on the news about the two coups back to back in Burkina Faso, and the violence of the jihadists in the north part of the country, but we're fine. All is well. We're safe. <sighs> but we're still praying, right? Paul says all is well. Now, he knows that not everybody would think that his situation is all well, but the chains kept him from moving as he normally would to a synagogue. Rome did have synagogues, unlike Philippi. Across the Tiber, on the west side of the Tiber, uh, Paul was no doubt 
in their house arrest somewhere on the east side near the barracks of the Imperial Guard. But he couldn't go to the synagogue. He couldn't mingle with folks in the marketplace. Uh, he was tied down. Uh, he didn't have his normal uh, mobility to get to people with the gospel. Uh, and yet he doesn't talk about that. He mentions the chains, but he doesn't talk about the frustration they might provide. Uh, he doesn't really express alarm about the possible outcomes of his trial, uh, the hearing that the emperor will finally give him. It could be release, it could be further ministry, it could be execution. It doesn't really matter about the charges or their, uh, their, whether they're substantiated. It could be either. He talks about that, but he doesn't really lament that. In fact, we're going to get to that. Uh, he sees either as a great option. Uh, but what he focuses on, as we heard in that first verse I read, verse 12, is that everything that's happened to him has served to advance the gospel has served to push forward the good news of Jesus Christ. That's what he focuses on, and that's really why he shares this news report on how things are going in the field. Not just to kind of reassure and set to rest the fears of the Philippians for their dear father in the faith, but really to say to them, by the way, this is the way you should process the hard things that come into your life. He will say by the end of this chapter, I know you have opponents. I know they tempt you to be terrified and to be intimidated. Don't let that happen. Suffering for Christ, just like faith in Christ, is God's gracious gift to you. So he shares what's going on with himself, not just to say, don't worry, all's well, but to say, Think about your own situation this way. So you see how this really does address all of us. Certainly it informs our missionary, our prayer for our missionaries, but it also informs how we look at our own lives. And what Paul does basically in our text is to say, I want you to know that I treasure the progress, the advance of the gospel, more than I treasure my personal comfort and freedom and acceptance by my family and friends. And I treasure the advance of the gospel more than I treasure my own ego and reputation. And I treasure the advance of the gospel even more than I treasure my own life itself. So that's what we're going to look at. And then we're going to ask the question, how can this happen? <laughs> how can we catch what had caught hold of Paul's heart? And we're going to see how important prayer is in this whole process. So first, verses 12, 13, 14. I love the advance of the gospel more than I love my personal comfort and freedom and the acceptance of my family and friends. My chains, my imprisonment, my being inhibited from moving around the capital of the most powerful world, world empire in at least the Western world at that time, all of that really has pushed the gospel forward, and that gives me great joy. Now remember why Paul was in chains. It wasn't because the Romans suddenly noticed him and thought, this guy is dangerous. 
he will undermine the empire. No, it was because the leaders of his own people back in Jerusalem fomented a mob in the temple courts and the Romans had to take Paul into protective custody or he would have been torn limb from limb or killed by stoning. And then the leaders of Paul's own people devised an assassination plot, an assassination plot against Paul. And so finally, he had no resort but to appeal to Caesar. So the Romans have custody, yes, but it's God's, God's own people and their leaders. The, the, the very men who, no doubt, when Paul was a youngster, as he says in Galatians, running ahead of everybody else, all of his fellow yeshiva boys, and studying Torah, and was way out ahead of everybody else. I mean, straight A plus in all the AP Torah courses, right? When he was the eager henchman of the high priest, eager to ride off to Damascus and arrest those Nazarenes and drag them back to Jerusalem for trial and condemnation and beating and maybe death, they loved him then. He was their guy. But he came back from that trip to Damascus, as you probably know, saying, actually, the Nazarenes are right. Jesus really is Messiah. He really has been raised from the dead. He really is ruling at God's right hand. And then, of all things, this very pious Pharisee begins to say, oh, and by the way, through Jesus, God is welcoming into his own family, into the family of Abraham, pagans who have no Abrahamic DNA in their, in their Ancestry.com profile and aren't even circumcised. Then they wanted to get rid of him. That's why Paul's in chains, because his own friends, his own family, his own colleagues had turned against him. We may not resonate much with being in chains, but some of you probably have experienced that. Some of our missionaries, I know, have met folks who have experienced that when they came to faith in Christ, to be turned away. You see, it's, it's a bigger thing, but, but Paul says, my personal family connections, my personal comfort and convenience, it's nothing compared to the advance of the gospel. In fact, my chains have done two wonderful things for the advance of the gospel. First of all, the imperial guard, the Praetorian Guard, is the old Latin way of referring to them, they all know why I'm here. Now the Praetorian Guard in the Roman Empire was basically the secret service, but with the skills of special forces. I mean, they were the premier people who were defending and protecting the emperor and in charge of high-profile uh, political criminals like Paul. <laughs> high profile, whatever. Anyway, they're guarding him. And of course, one of them, a succession of four of them every 24 hours, is chained to Paul. And Paul says, the word has gotten around the Praetorian guard that my chains are for Christ. And you can almost picture that scene, can't you? Some guy comes off of his six-hour duty, chained to Paul, and Paul's, and he goes back to the barracks and he says, you are not going to believe this guy. He never stops talking. And the only thing he wants to talk about is the, is, is the prophet that we crucified some years ago because his own people turned against him. And he keeps pushing us to say, 
you need to bow the knee to King Jesus. And so the word gets out, and the word gets out, and the word gets out. Now, Paul had arrived in Rome as he arrived in Philippi and a lot of other towns. A free man with some rabbinic credentials, yes, but now that, that, you know, able to preach wherever, preach in the marketplace, meet with the philosophers in in Athens. Uh, Could he have gotten into the imperial guard? Well, maybe only if there was a riot, and that sometimes happened, but you see what God did. Paul probably would not have had access to the imperial guard just if he were a free man, but he's there, and, and God's secret weapon is he puts Paul in chains and chains Paul to these premier soldiers, and suddenly God is smuggling the gospel into the imperial household right under Nero's nose. And it bore fruit. You know how we know it bore fruit? Because in the last chapter, Paul sends greetings to the Christians of Philippi from the believers that he's with in Rome, including the people in Caesar's household. Family? Well, maybe family. Maybe not family. But at least slaves, servants, and some of these imperial guards. People had come to faith. Serving to advance the gospel. And Paul says, and not only that, since I can't go out in the streets, since I can't get to the synagogues on the other side of the Tiber, actually more Christians are talking about Jesus boldly than they had been before I got to Roman chains. He says, I'm talking ahead of my notes. That's a bad idea. Okay. He says, yeah, um, most of the brothers, this is verse 14, have become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment and are much more bold to speak the word without fear. They see me in chains and they think, Paul talks about Jesus. He ends up in Roman custody. Oh, I want to be like that. That seems a little counterintuitive, unless the gospel's at work. And these people who love Paul and know that he's sidelined for the time being, at least from the way he would normally preach in a big city like Rome, think, well, we want to step into the gap and we want to share the gospel. Paul says they're even bolder than they ever were before. So certainly my chains have advanced the gospel. Paul is saying, look at whatever your hardship is, especially hardship that may come to you because you belong to Jesus. That sometimes happens in the developing world, certainly in the Muslim world, in the world dominated by communism, in the world dominated by Eastern religions. That happens all the time. Maybe even in Bible Belt, Tennessee, sometimes hard to imagine. Sometimes talking too much about Jesus will offend some people. You've got good news, but they hear it as an insult to their tradition or as an attack on their identity. But Paul says, if you suffer in any way, shape, or form, that serves to advance the gospel. Ask yourself, how can that happen? As he's showing us by example how to process difficulties in a way that pushes the good news of Christ forward. So that's verses 12 through 13. 15 through 18, Paul goes on to say, I actually love the advance of the gospel more than I love my own ego and reputation. 
Because, as you may have noticed uh, when we heard this read, Paul says they're all eager to advance the gospel. Actually, though, these eager evangelists here in Rome are kind of a mixed bag in terms of motives. Some of them are doing it because they love me and they want the gospel to go forward. They want to sort of be my extension out in the city. But others, well, he says, are preaching Christ from envy and rivalry, verse 15. Or uh, just not long after that, verse 17, they proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. They think, ah, Paul's put on the sideline. <laughs> Paul's out of the game. Now I can make a lot of converts, and I will win the evangelistic soul-winning gold medal. And that's going to really bug Paul. That's going to really bother him. That's going to make his chains chafe. That's going to make him feel that the chains, the weight of those chains, all the more heavily. Now think about how Paul replies or responds in other letters to people who think that they're his competitors or his rivals. Think about the letter to the Galatians, for example, where we have a group that are taking Paul's young converts and saying, yeah, believing in Jesus was fine, but you know you need to keep all the commands that God gave to Israel through Moses, and that's what will make you really pleasing to God. What does Paul say about them? He says, God's curse on them. Wow. Think about how Paul describes the teachers who follow Paul after he's planted the church in Corinth, the super apostles, health and wealth preachers, strong on eloquence, strong on influence, strong on confidence, strong, and saying, you know, Paul's pretty weak. What does Paul say about them? Servants of Satan. Servants of Satan. So why doesn't Paul do that about these guys who think they're his rivals? Only one answer. They're preaching Christ. Their motives are horrible. In fact, their motives are like the motives that actually tempt some of the Philippians. He'll use these same words in chapter 2 to say, don't you do things out of envy and empty pride. No. But the motives are horrible, but the message they're preaching is the true message of Christ. So he's very mellow here. And he says, in fact, because they're preaching Christ truly, I know their fruit is going to last. We've sung about that this morning. And because their fruit is going to last, I will rejoice. I will applaud their success. Because this is not about me. This is not about my ego. This is not about my reputation. What matters is the advance of the true gospel of the true and living Christ. I love that. And I will rejoice when it bears good fruit. Verses 22 through 26, Paul looks not just at the present situation of what's going on while he's in prison, but he's looking ahead a little bit at the outcome of his hearing before Caesar. And uh, he's saying here, I, I, I love the advance of the gospel more than I love life itself. As he's thinking about what the outcomes could be of the hearing, 
he looks at it in verse 22. We're going to come back to the verses just before that. But in verse 22, he says, If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that's far better. But to remain in the flesh with you is more necessary for your, on your account. I know there are two outcomes that could come out of this. Even though the charges are, well, non-existent, I know that Caesar has that kind of power of life and death that he could say, there's nothing against this man, who is, by the way, a Roman citizen. Let him go. Paul says, that means I can come back to you, I can preach the gospel to you and to others again. Fruitful labor. Or Caesar, because he is Caesar, could say, eh, off with his head. And that is the way they would execute a Roman citizen. No crucifixion for Roman citizens. Just behead him. And Paul says, actually, that would be better for me. <laughs> because then I'd be with Christ. And that's better by far. So it's a hard choice. Do I get to go to be with Jesus right away? Execution? Or do I stay here on earth and have fruitful labor among you? I don't know which to choose. Some of you probably had an English teacher that made you read Shakespeare's Hamlet, right? And you've heard and you remember at least, probably if anything you remember about Hamlet is his to be or not to be speech. That's when Hamlet's trying to decide whether to commit suicide. His life is horrible. His uncle murdered his father, married his mother, and the prince of Denmark doesn't know what to do about it. So he's thinking about killing himself. But what gives him pause is he doesn't know what, and actually he's afraid of what comes after death. He doesn't know. This is where we get the term slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. That's about his present life. He doesn't want to be through that torture anymore. But then, when he thinks about suicide, he's even more scared. The dread of something after death, the undiscovered country from which no traveler returns, makes us rather bear those ills we have, the present problems that we see, than fly to others we know not of. Thus conscience makes cowards of us all. I'm too afraid because I don't know what's next. Life is horrible. After, life, after death, it could be worse. Paul says, I don't know which to choose. After death is the best I get to be with Christ. But if I get to stay here, this world is not so great, but I get fruitful labor. It's all good, either way. I just want to advance the gospel, and I'm not afraid to die. In fact, that's better for me, but I'm also not afraid to live because that will serve others. You see how Paul, even there, in making that choice, as he goes on to say, I'm pretty, I'm pretty persuaded that you still need me. And so because I'm convinced of this, verse 25, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, that I'll be back and I'll be preaching to you some more and bringing the gospel. This life gives me good opportunities to bring God's news to you. And I think that's what the Lord would have me do. And so what Paul says is what I want most of all 
And this is really the heart of the whole message. And, and this is what explains to us how Paul can say the advance of the gospel is everything. I don't care about my freedom. I don't care about my comfort. I don't care about my people's rejection of me. I don't care about my reputation. I don't care about my life itself. What enables him to say what I care about is the advance of the gospel is what we read in verses 20 and 21. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Paul's heart is all wrapped around the advance of the gospel because it's about Jesus. It's about Christ. And for him, to live is Christ. Paul loves Jesus so much. Why? Because Jesus loved Paul so much first. We're going to think more about that this evening uh, as we're at our dinner and at the evening program about what comes first. God's love for us, our love for God. Paul says clearly it's God's love for me that comes first. He talks about what Christ gave up, what it cost him in Philippians 2, when he says that even though Christ was in very nature God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but nullified himself, made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant born in likeness of men and becoming obedient to the death of the cross. Paul knows that's what Christ did. And Paul knows why Christ did it. Over in Romans, Romans 5, Paul has already written, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God the Father's love sent Christ to die for us. And since we've been justified by his blood, much more we will be saved by him from the wrath of God. So in an even earlier letter in Galatians, Paul could write to the Galatians who were tempted to go in that direction of self made righteousness by law-keeping, Paul could say, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In the past, Christ loved me, gave himself for me. In the present, Christ lives in me by his Holy Spirit. This is why the gospel's advance is captivating Paul's passion and what he wants us, as well as our Philippian brothers and sisters, to be captured by, to see the beauty of Christ. And Paul says that happens, among other ways, as we pray for one another. He said to the Philippians in verse 19, I know I'm going to rejoice because I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Now that's an interesting sentence. Robert mentioned I've written something on Philippians. It's interesting to read all the commentators on Philippians debating what deliverance means here. Yeah, it's, it's the word that Paul often, most often uses for eternal salvation. 
for being freed from sin and its guilt and brought into the family of God. But it can have other kinds of meanings as well. So some scholars say, well, Paul is saying right here, I know I'm going to be released by Caesar. I know I'll be delivered, so I'll be back to you. And yet Paul, in the next verses, goes on to do this back and forth, pro and con, I don't know what to ask the Lord for. I think I will come back to you. I'm persuaded I will come back to you. But up front here, he says, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. Some scholars think I'll be released. That seems a little premature to me. Some scholars say, I know whether I live or die, I'm saved forever. And that, of course, is true. But let me propose to you another possibility that maybe Paul is talking about deliverance from the very next thing that he mentions in this passage. As you pray for me, and as the Holy Spirit answers your prayers for me, I will not at all be ashamed. But now, as always, Christ will be honored, glorified in my body, whether by life or by death. I will be delivered from the temptation to be ashamed of Jesus. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Romans. But he also knows his own weakness. So he asks, asks actually the church at Ephesus, from this same Roman imprisonment, he begs them, pray for me. Pray that the words may be given me to open my mouth, so help me to speak clearly, but pray that I may open it boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, there's our word that's here, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Twice boldly, Paul says, pray for me. I'm not Superman, you know. The Philippians might think he was Superman. He was their father in the faith. He's a missionary. He's an apostle. But he could feel fear. I think part of the reason that he mentioned that there were other Christians in Rome bold to preach the gospel now was the Philippians couldn't say, well, of course Paul would be bold, but you know the rest of us can't. And Paul's saying, no, there's actually a lot of your brothers and sisters in Rome who out of good motives are talking about the gospel. But here Paul is, has been saying, I need, I need your prayers so that I will not be ashamed, so that Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, because to me to live is Christ. We should pray for lots of things for our missionaries. Pray for their financial support, sure. Pray for their safety and their health. Pray for language learning and getting acclimated to cultures. Pray for peaceful dealings with authorities and patience with bureaucratic complexities. Our son and daughter-in-law serve in the gospel in Asia, and we know these things from lots of emails and lots of prayer over those things. Pray for their partnerships with national Christians. Pray for open doors to share the good news, but also pray for their courage. And if we pray for them, we need to pray for ourselves too. When Paul wrote prayer letters to his partner churches, at the top of his list was pray for me that I will not be ashamed, but that with all boldness I will let Christ be known. And Paul says, I know as you pray, the Holy Spirit will answer your prayers. So this actually brings us right back to the Great Commission. 
Because the advance of the gospel can only go forward if Jesus makes good the promise with which he closes the Great Commission. I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. And Jesus will make good his promise through the powerful presence of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Interesting, that's Paul, Paul calls the Spirit here, the Spirit of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, sent by the Son to advance the gospel by empowering and emboldening God's witnesses. Near and far, near and far, Jesus makes good his promise and his kingdom agenda will be accomplished. His, the light of his salvation will reach to the ends of the earth. Our witness, our prayers, our sending, our going, our giving, our joys and our frustrations, our progress and our setbacks, all of them, serve to advance the gospel of the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Praise God that he's pleased to use us as partners in the advance of the gospel of his grace to the ends of the earth. Let's pray together. Father, because you sent your Son from the glories and joys of heaven to the miseries of earth, because the Son of God loved us and gave himself for us, we can say with Paul, to me to live is Christ. And when you call, to die is gain. Father, we commit ourselves to the advance of the gospel. We are committed because you're committed to us and you've called us by your grace. You've given us different roles to which you call us in this global mission, going, sending, praying, speaking, winsomely, boldly, near and far. Give us grace not to be ashamed. Give those whom, with whom we partner who go to other cultures and countries boldness not to be ashamed. Give us all an eagerness to have Christ get all the glory in what people see and hear in us. For the glory of your name, by the help of your spirit, in answer to the prayers of your people. Amen.